Welcome to Meals for Maturity, Bible talks to help you mature as a follower of Jesus, by Pastor Dom Fiocco. Welcome to another Meals for Maturity uh, Bible talk. Now, I've said before in our Meals for Maturity series that when you read the Bible, when we read the Bible, we need to realise that God is the ultimate hero across its pages, and nothing is more clearer than that when we read Esther chapters 6 and 7. Perhaps during this period of exile for the Jews, living in a foreign land, remember living in Persia under a foreign king, maybe they've reached a point where they've determined that God has abandoned them and left them to their own devices. But then when you read these middle chapters of Esther, you can't help but see that the Most High Sovereign God is actually orchestrating his wonderful plans. And what we thought was God in absence is actually God in action. And from chapter 5 onwards in the story of Esther, Esther is no longer the, the, the trophy wife of a Persian king. She's now come into her own and then she now stands tall as the queen, taking up her position of power and then using her royal position for such a time as this. Well, let's hear Jen read chapter 6 to us now. Chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthanar and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honour or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honour more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honour, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honour, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Chapter 6 begins with a king who's sleepless in Susa. 
Uh, verse 1 becomes a real turning point in this wonderful story. The king's been tossing and turning and counting sheep, perhaps thinking of the next party and feed from Queen Esther tomorrow, but still he can't get to sleep. Now, we've all been there, haven't we? Lying awake in the middle of the night, your mind ticking over, replaying events, or perhaps trying to plan what lies ahead. Insomnia. Adam Young of Owl City fame wrote a song once because he couldn't get to sleep. He called it Fireflies. I'd like to make myself believe that planet Earth turns slowly. It's hard to say that I'd rather stay awake when I'm asleep. Now, there's been some weird cures offered for insomnia. Here's the top three I've come across. Rubbing dog earwax on your teeth. I haven't tried that one, sorry. How about drinking a a potion containing the bile of a castrated boar? Uh, Might avoid that one as well. What about watching a YouTube clip of a crossword puzzle tournament? Hmm, maybe not. But for King Xerxes here in the book of Esther, he tries a cure for insomnia that might just work. He gets out the minutes of a past government meeting and he asks them to be read to him while he lies awake. And so the book of Chronicles or the book of history of the Persian Empire is brought out. And he gives orders for his servants, also kept awake by the way, uh, to pick a page and just to start reading it to him. A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Well, not quite. But the story is told of a conspiracy to assassinate a king, the very same king who is now lying awake, perhaps with bellyache because of too much Queen Esther food and wine. Anyway, the servants of the king have turned to an episode which we actually read about in chapter 2. Remember Big Thana and Teresh hiding in the bushes, planning to wipe out the king until Mordecai stumbles upon their sinister plot and he lets Queen Esther know, who in turn lets her hubby, the king, know about this assassination attempt. Well, King Xerxes vaguely remembers this episode some five years ago, and so he asked the readers of the Chronicles, so what did I do for this Mordecai fellow who saved my bacon that day? Did I give him a nice pay packet, throw a party for him perhaps? I can't remember what reward I gave him. Uh, Sorry, King X-Man, it seems you didn't really reward Mordecai for saving your life. At least there's nothing written here in the record books, no entry into Hansard. What? No reward for Mordecai? Shame on me. Now remember, this is a shame honour culture, so this is a grave oversight by the king. For someone to not be honoured or rewarded for such a noble deed as this, for saving the life of a king, that is a terrible thing. And so the king immediately gets to work on restoring honour to his name and also to Mordecai. And then in verse 4, the fun really begins. Someone enters the king's court. We're not sure why this happens so early in the morning or in the middle of the night. Maybe it's dawn. We're not told. The king asks, who's in the royal court? Haman, your majesty, comes a reply. For it just so happens that Haman has arrived early, excited to tell the king about the gallows and the hanging of Mordecai that he's planned overnight. You see, the king can't sleep. Meanwhile, the prime minister hasn't been sleeping. He's been doing some carpentry work on a huge apparatus ready to hang an enemy. But the king gets in first, verse 6. Tell me, Haman, what should I do with a man I would like to honour? Now, the king doesn't mention any names, and Haman foolishly thinks it must be him that the king wants to honour. I mean, who else would there be other than Haman the Magnificent? Why, your majesty, he should be given royal robes and a royal horse and be paraded in the city street, and it should be broadcast loud and clear, 
This is the man whom the king delights to honour. What a great idea, Haman. Why didn't I think of that? Can you please go and find Mordecai and do all that you have recommended? Honour the man who once rescued his king. Now Haman, you can imagine, has egg on his face, scrambled, poached and fried. Haman here is the centre of the irony, the, the dark comedy of this true story. Haman's worst nightmare is about to become reality. The man with the biggest ego is about to be deflated like a dead balloon. Now, we're not told how Haman reacts or how he feels or even what he says to Mordecai, if anything. One writer says that the words that Haman is to announce on the city streets as he leads Mordecai in this public honouring, it must have seemed like gravel in his mouth. So the Jew he hates with a passion and who he is planning to murder is about to be led out and honoured by all. And Haman the humiliated is the one leading Mordecai in this public procession. What great irony. Haman is now the servant of Mordecai. Overnight the tables have been turned and the very thing that uh, Mordecai refused to do, that is to bow down to Haman, well now Haman is telling others to bow down to Mordecai. All because it just so happened that the king was sleepless in Susa. The story is told of a, of a British school student back in February 1916, this is, and he happened to buy a book at a used book sale at a railway station as he was passing by. This 16-year-old student had seen this book before, perhaps a dozen times, but had never purchased it. This time, however, he decided to buy it then and there. It was a novel by a Christian writer called George MacDonald, and the book was called Fantasies. It was spelled P-H-A-N-T-A-S-T-S. And the student who picked up uh, that book to read, uh, that later read, that they wrote, I had or wrote about this event, I had not the faintest notion what I had let myself in for by buying that book. It was a story that would eventually lead to this man's conversion to Christ. And the student who picked up that used book that day, C.S. Lewis. Later he would say to a friend, I believe that God had directed me to pick up that book. It was a book that would also inspire C.S. Lewis to write his own fantasy novels reflecting the gospel story in the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, back in the Persian court of King Xerxes, I believe God directs the king's servants to pick out that particular volume of the Persian Chronicles and turn to that particular page about Mordecai uncovering the assassination plot of the king. I believe God directs them to pick up that book and chapter. And from this moment on, things move pretty quickly now in the drama of the king, the queen, the prime minister, Mordecai and the Jews. Let's hear chapter 7. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. 
If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Esther chapter 7 is a real highlight for the Jewish audience. Hangman Haman. The events that happen here are at breathtaking speed and Haman never expects uh, this outcome the night before. I don't need to relive the story for you. It's brilliantly told by our narrator and well read by Jen. Haman's humiliation is complete and he is now no more. Tragically for Haman and humorously for us as readers, what brings Haman's world crashing down is not so much the death sentence that he previously put on the Jews, remember back to chapters 3 and 4, but his kneeling before a Jewish woman. Haman is pleading for mercy, begging at the feet of a Jewish queen. And Haman is declared guilty of a crime he neither commits nor intends to commit, that is, the molesting or the perhaps rape of Esther. You see, something or someone is against Haman. A later copy uh, or an edition of the book of Esther, the Greek translation of, of this book, includes a line about the angel Gabriel giving Haman a firm shove so that he falls on the queen's couch. I don't think that's what's happened, but it does give us a good laugh at Haman's fate being sealed. But definitely poetic justice is served here when the chapter ends with Haman hanging on the gallows that he had built the night before for Mordecai. One preacher writes, God takes his name out of Esther, so the moment we look at Esther again and again, we can say, that's God, that's God, that's God. When God appears to be absent in your life, trust me, he's at work. I've called the series God Behind the Scene, the ordinary, extraordinary outworkings of God behind the scene. And here in chapter 6 and 7, there is no greater display of that's God, that's God, that's God at work. His hidden hand of providence being revealed in the ordinary happenings. And this hand of providence runs all the way through the storyline of the Bible. Nothing is ever outside of God's providential control. God's providence, that is his provision, his sovereign workings in everyday events and through ordinary people means that nothing escapes his notice and nothing happens without his permission. You know, as I read the story of Esther, I'm reminded of two key Bible verses that I believe every Christian should know and lean on often. One in the Old Testament, uh, the other in the New Testament. Remember Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, the Joseph story when he says to his brothers, 
As for you guys, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about his purposes. And then in the New Testament, Romans 8, verse 28, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The message of Esther, chapter 6 and 7, is super clear. God is sovereign. God's hand of providence, the unseen God, is to be seen. Even when life doesn't seem to make much sense to us, even when all hope might seem lost to you, even when gallows are built and someone is about to be hung, nothing is ever outside of God's sovereign watch and care. You might know uh, the Christian song, Sovereign Over Us. Even when the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. That could well be the song from the book of Esther. So in the story of Esther, and therefore in your story and mine, we can be confident that God is at work behind the scenes. Let me remind us again of what just so happens across this remarkable story. It just so happens, way back in chapter 1, that Queen Vashti is removed from the throne and an opportunity arises for Esther. It just so happens a Jew is chosen out of all the beauty queens across the Persian Empire. It just so happens that Mordecai hears the would-be assassins in chapter 2, and that the king couldn't sleep one night and calls for the history books, and that the chronicles read that night happened to be about Mordecai rescuing the king. It just so happens that Haman turned up at the exact moment in the king's court. It just so happens the king asked Haman how to reward a man of honour. It just so happens that Haman is the one who leads Mordecai in this royal procession. It just so happens that Esther is allowed to approach the king unannounced and offer him a banquet. And at the second banquet, the, queen, the king re-enters to find Haman falling all over Queen Esther. And it just so happens that the gallows built by Haman for Mordecai will have Haman hanging on them. See, all these events, some big, some small, they all affect the outcome of the story of Esther. But none is the result of any strategy on the part of the Jews. Now, either the Jews have extraordinary good luck, an amazing string of coincidences, or there are unseen powers here at work. There is more than pure chance happening in this story. Here is the hidden hand of God ruling and overruling to bring about his sovereign purposes. God is present, you see, even when he's absent from the pages of Esther. Even when there are no miracles or dreams or visions or no prophets or not even no prayers, not even any God talk, God is present. He is active and he is the mighty deliverer. In Esther chapters 6 and 7, our unnamed author is using our unnamed God to do his salvation and sparing work upon his people. And he does so in extraordinary ways through fairly ordinary means. Could it be that the author of Esther here is also preparing us for another story of God's mighty deliverance into the near future? Another time when all seems lost and hopeless for another Jew dying on the cross, yet remarkably God is doing his salvation and sparing work once more. Well, let me leave us with two simple reflections for you and me. Firstly, are you thankful for God's extraordinary workings in your life through ordinary means? It happens so often, and we often forget to end each day in thankfulness, in praise to the Lord who is in total control of our lives. 
that unplanned chance meeting of someone at a church or a party or the shops, and from there a, a job opportunity opens up for you. A simple Christian tract or book you pick up and you read and you actually start your journey to faith in Christ. The envelope of money you're given unexpectedly, which is the exact amount you need to move forward in God's plans. The car that doesn't start in the morning for some reason, which means you miss the road fatality that happens on your usual drive. The sermon or the Christian song you hear, which is just what you needed to hear at that precise moment. The failed job interview that spares you the horror of a terrible workplace. The fellowship group you visit for the first time in fear and trembling, but that day, that night, you meet your future spouse. The sports injury that means, well, you don't quite get selected on the team and go away for the weekend. Instead, you get invited to church and you're, you're reluctant to go along, but so begins your Christian journey. You see, tiny, unspectacular, ordinary miracles of God's providence directing your steps day by day where to be thankful. The second reflection is when you think or when you feel God to be silent or perhaps distant or when you feel all alone or you think that God has somehow lost interest in the details of your life or when your world is just crumbling around you and you doubt God and his word, well then remember the story of Esther and know for certain that God is behind the scene and know for certain that God's providential hand is guiding your path. And know for certain that God's love and his care and protection has not left you. And know for certain that your life is not driven by luck or chance or blind fate, but that God is the careful choreographer of your life if you're found trusting in the Lord Jesus. And know for certain that all things work for the good of those who love the Lord Jesus and are called to live for him. Amen.